We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Rebecca Heinrichs. Rebecca is a senior fellow at the Hudson, Hudson Institute. She also just came in from playing in the snow. Rebecca, thanks so much for taking the time to chat today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for uh, doing this topic and having me on to chat about it. Yeah. So I actually realized one of the reasons I wanted to talk to Rebecca in particular is I feel like nobody in the media, the legacy media is talking about the fact that we're staring down now like weeks at the Beijing Olympics, the Winter Olympics in Beijing. Nobody's talking about it. There was a lot of kerfuffle when we, uh, as the United States said, we would do a diplomatic boycott of the Olympics, despite the fact that a lot of people were calling for a full boycott. They went with a diplomatic boycott. It starts, I, I just realized, the, those Olympic Games start a month from today exactly. Uh, yes. Rebecca, where do things stand? I mean, I guess, what would you say, I want to just sort of open this up on a broad topic, kind of how you are feeling about the fact that we're about to send our athletes for to what is basically a giant propaganda campaign or propaganda event for the Chinese Communist Party. Um, do you expect any more response from the United States government in the next month? Do you expect any more movement, um, anything more than this diplomatic boycott to come of to come in the next few weeks? Well, I'm not expecting that, but this is an administration that is uh, that is winging it. So we shall see. Um, you know, the, as you pointed out, the difference, of course, between the diplomatic boycott and the full boycott is that you know we're we're still sending athletes; they're still competing. Um, we're just not going to send U.S. officials to kind of give their stamp of um, of approval. It's their way of just saying, you know, they're they're protesting uh, specific known atrocities, uh, mainly the Xinjiang, the genocide camps. Um, and, and then other countries have followed. So they're also doing a diplomatic boycott. I'm actually, you know, I'm concerned about the propaganda boon, obviously, that this is going to give China, because what the Chinese Communist Party is trying to do, what, what they're engaged in right now, they're trying to sell to the world that they have a system of government that is superior to the liberal democracies. That is, that's that's what they're trying to, to demonstrate. To the West. And pardon me? To the West, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. They're, 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 they're trying to sell that to Europe. They're selling that to our Asian allies um, who have been, you know, cooperating with the United States and betting on the United States are trying to sell everybody that they have a better system of government. And so to the extent that the U S just keeps quiet about our differences and how bad their system is, we're just lending ourselves to their propaganda machine. But the, the other thing that I'm worried about is the actual safety of our athletes. Mm -hmm. You know, China, the Chinese communist party has shown itself, especially in the last couple of years, much more brazen in their willingness to engage in hostage diplomacy you know, where they're snatching, you know, the couple of Canadians, uh, the two Michaels, um, because the Canadian government was honoring, you know, U.S. sanctions requirements whenever the, um, the, the Chinese official was engaged in sanctions violations. And she was being held in, um, you know, uh, whatever it's called, home, home prison um, <laughs> um, and, and in Canada. And so then the Chinese government snatched a couple of the Canadians totally erroneously on trumped up charges. And, and, and the Biden administration negotiated their release 
but but we didn't really hear anything else about it. There was no punishment. There was no big um, public outcry for what China had just engaged in. And so, I, you know, I'm not confident that our athletes are safe. Um, there's all kinds of, of course, re repression going on countrywide in China, even beyond the genocide camps that we know about. So it's not safe. And um, so it, it's an uncomfortable situation just beyond the, the propaganda problem. Uh, you know, I'm, I am concerned and I think we're going to I do think we're going to hear more about it from the media, obviously, as the as the Olympics go on. But pay attention to how U.S. media covers the Olympics. That's what I would say. You know, who who doesn't talk about their their human rights violations? Who just focuses on the Olympic part of it, like part of it? Um, it's it's a problem. It's a major problem. And we should be we should be constantly talking about all of the problems going on inside China as the Olympics unfold. Yeah, that's all just fantastic points. And one of the things I want to zero in on, there's a lot that I want to zero in on that. But to start, um, exactly what you just said, there's been a lot of good reporting on what's happening in Xinjiang, actually from the New York Times and from BuzzFeed, et cetera, et cetera. But the narrative itself that we are about to enter these Olympics just doesn't break into the news cycle with any <clears throat> regularity unless somebody asks about it in like a White House briefing. What, from your perspective, explains the media's <clears throat> disinterest in this topic and i'll add a, a one potential theory that i have is it because there's sort of the, the the ccp kind of muddles the reality of what's happening in xinjiang and says you know this is not this is being blown out of proportion this was a legitimate threat etc cetera, etc cetera, and it's intimidating for these publications i don't know if that theory is accurate but i do know that they are engaged in of course this huge campaign to diminish the severity of what's happening in Xinjiang. Um, so what explains it? And, and the, the... Well, it's a great question. I mean, I would say one thing um, that I know of is NBC in particular uh, paid $7.75 billion with a B dollars for its Olympic rights access mm -hmm. to, to cover the Olympics. So you've got these major media um, outlets that have paid for access to the Olympic Games. And anybody who is uh, dealing with the Chinese government right now and wants access to their market, access to their people, access to covering anything that's going on inside their country must abide by particular parameters set by the Chinese Communist Party. It, and, and, and so when you watch NBC reporters cover the Olympic Games, watch how they even couch if they do talk about you know, the genocide camps or the persecution of Christians, uh, which nobody's talking about. But I was going to ask if, you about that. Let's get into that. But it, continue. <laughs> yes. I mean, you, we, we know, but we know about the genocide camps. But I mean, there is no religious freedom in, in all of China. And and any religious group that goes against the, you know, the atheist Chinese Communist Party line is dispersed and is kept at a very minimum. And, and, and so you get, there's repression just going up countrywide, but it's all religious groups, but Christians in particular, the last couple of years have really um, felt the squeeze by the, by the party. But, but anyway, all, all these things are going on inside China. You're not going to hear about. And even if they, even if these reporters do talk about the genocide camps, what they'll say is alleged. They'll always have that word alleged, or they'll sort of give it a little bit of a, maybe it's not true. It's just what people are saying. And, um, it's just what the hawks are saying. They're going to couch it differently because 
you know, I don't, I haven't seen any memorandum that anybody signed for, you know, having access to covering the Olympic games, but we do know that major companies like Apple and Tesla and all these other companies that are doing business in, in China do have to follow the rules and restrictions on speech and, and what is allowed to be discussed and talked about. So, you know, of course, you're not going to have the Chinese government's not going to allow all of these media outlets to to shine a bright light on on the things that are bad for them and good for us to, to bring light to. What you said about Christians, I think, is so important because and I was going to ask you about that. You mentioned um, in your response to the first question, you know, there are all other kinds of repression that are happening in China beyond Xinjiang. And it does seem that um, when we talk about human rights abuses in China, we talk about Xinjiang and the CCP muddles the water and says, you know, this, these are alleged, etc. But this is a country where freedom is restricted severely period. The human rights abuses go way beyond um, just what's happening. And I shouldn't even say just because uh, what we know is happening there is obviously terrible and a, a tragedy on a mass scale. But can you talk to us a little bit about how the Chinese government restricts the freedom I mean, just in the most basic way sure. of its citizens and particularly what we've seen, uh, how we've seen them treat Christians in recent years? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, first, I'll just couch this by saying if there's any like actual China experts, there's this is this is not going to be as in depth as what they could provide. Um, but but I will say that, you know, one thing that Americans tend to always do, all of us across the spectrum, is we we think that other countries generally think like we do. You know, this idea of these universal principles that apply to people, human beings, all have dignity and. They're endowed by certain natural rights, freedom of expression, the right to life, all these sorts of things. And, you know, obviously, uh, well, I guess it's not obvious, but other countries don't subscribe to those views. Um, the Chinese Communist Party believes that the state over the individual is, is what is the most important thing. And for, for decades, when China was still weak militarily and weak economically, we didn't hear a lot about the repression that was going on inside China because the hope was still, you know, give them space and they will liberalize as they become richer and become integrated in the global economy. Obviously, that didn't happen. Um, they got rich and then they used their riches to pour into their military to, to, to be able to compete with the U.S. And now this Chinese concept of hide our capabilities and bide our time is what the CCP had, had been engaged in for decades and now they're not hiding their capabilities. Um, they're biding their time a lot less because they are so you know, rich and powerful. And so they're being more brazen in their domestic repression too. So we know a lot more about it. They're operating the most technologically advanced surveillance state. And they are monitoring all of Chinese nationals um, communications. And, and they, you know, they have this reward system for, for those who, who, um, are are doing what the CCP wants them to say and do, and then you you don't have certain privileges and opportunities if you don't, and so it's very coercive. Christians are are thought to be harmless to the party as long as they stay in small groups and don't congregate in large groups. As soon as a church is congregating more than whatever the number is, 20, 50 people, you still have a member of the party coming and breaking it up and dispersing these groups, keeping it very minimal. Um, I mean, you can't you can't speak out and criticize the, the Chinese Communist Party um, at all. You, you have to make sure that it's completely innocuous and doesn't challenge anything that they're doing, doesn't challenge the justice of what they're doing. 
And, and that's what we saw, you know, at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, doctors and journalists and others who were just pointing out how inhumane the treatment of Chinese nationals were when they were freaking out about, about this virus. I mean, all those people were disappeared. You don't even hear about them anymore. Um, and, and some of them have resurfaced hundreds of days later, but they are completely quiet and won't talk about where they were, what they just endured. So, I mean, it, it is a, it is a, you think about just North Korea, people automatically think, oh, terrible, atrocious, you know, human rights state. People should start thinking that way about China. It's the same thing that's happening there. It's just that it's much richer and we are entangled with them economically. And so people don't quite know what to do about it at this point. But but it is a it is a monster of a regime in terms of how it treats its people. And it's increasingly stretching beyond its borders and implementing the same kind of censorship um, that goes on inside and tries to use that coercively to the extent that people let it outside its borders as well. And to the extent that people let it is a great segue to another thread that I wanted to keep pulling at. You talked about the propaganda um, of the event of the Olympics itself, and that comes at in a very important moment for China. They want to, as you said, um, really undermine the legitimacy or the prestige of the sort of Western state and Western liberalism. And they want to say right now that what they're doing is better. And the Olympics are essentially their propaganda of ushering in this new decade and this new era, as they see it, of Chinese dominance. Can you talk about the importance as a propaganda effect uh, that they that at least that the Chinese government sees the Olympics as? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, they're what they're trying to do. This is why you don't ever. I think that they've said like they're, they're like daily Omicron cases right now. Or they have like one a day or something totally ridiculous and unbelievable. But one of the things that they're going to try to communicate is look how well they handled the pandemic. Mm. You know, look at the, the the silly, you know, liberal Democratic Americans and their open society are still just bumbling along. And this pandemic with all these deaths and hospitalizations and look at them, they, they, they've had very few and they've got everything under control and um, and they're able to have this very efficient, uh, you know, Olympic Games and look at their athletes. They're, they're able to, you know, to produce these amazing athletes that can um, that can c- compete with with the West and the kinds of athletes that the West produces. Um, They're going to show their amazing infrastructure and how efficient their economy has been able to to be and then have this amazing infrastructure. I mean, this is they're going to show their fight against climate change, even though they're the dirtiest country in the world in terms of its um, CO2 and just how just how abusive against the environment China is. But they're going to they're going to just advertise all of this. And. Um, they're, they're going to try to show, I mean, listen, and this isn't even just like theory. I mean, Xi Jinping in October, 2017 at the 19 communist party Congress outlined his vision for what a China led world would be like, you know, we've had a U.S. Western led world and now look what a China one can be much more efficient, much more globalized and um, and so I, you know, we should all expect to hear that kind of propaganda message, not just from state party officials, but from everybody and from the athletes. And this is why, you know, one last point on this is that the, the tennis player, the Olympic tennis player, 
you know, she she credibly accused a member of the Chinese Communist Party of sexual abuse and she was immediately disappeared. Mm. And, and so, you know, we should also expect to see her continue to pop up here. Happy as can be and smiling from year to year um, because the, the, the again, the Chinese government is very intentional about its propaganda and its very controlled state message. So anything we hear from Chinese media, people should just keep in mind, this is not a free and open media, independent media. This is all state run pushing one national message. When did we decide to stop upholding free speech as a basic right? What's playing out right now at big tech companies and social media sites sets a dangerous precedent. Look, it doesn't matter what your politics are or who you voted for. Everyone should have the right to express themselves freely. Sadly, the big tech monopoly has instead opted for silencing tactics and censorship. To fight back against big tech's control of the internet, I use ExpressVPN. Ever wondered how free-to-access tech giants make all their money? Well, by tracking your searches, video history, and everything you click on. By building a profile on you and then selling off your sensitive data. When you use the ExpressVPN app on your computer or phone, you anonymize much of your online presence by hiding your IP address. That makes your activity more difficult to trace and sell to advertisers. What's more, ExpressVPN encrypts 100% of your network data to protect you from eavesdroppers and cyber criminals. What I like most is how easy it is to use. It just takes one click to protect all your devices. That's why ExpressVPN is rated number one by Business Insider. So let's stop allowing big tech to revoke our rights to free speech. Why not revoke their right to your data instead? Secure your internet with the VPN I trust for online protection. Visit expressvpn.com slash federalist. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash federalist to get three extra months free with my exclusive link. Go to expressvpn.com slash federalist, expressvpn.com slash federalist right now to learn more. But NBC needs its money, so we'll be complicit in all of this. Um, and this reminds me also, I mean, this is one thing that I want to talk to you about, Rebecca, is something that Ben got at in his monologue on Fox News primetime last week on China. He talked about how the threat, the sort of external threat from the CCP is very similar to the inter- internal threat of wokeness here at home. And I thought that point was really important. I think he was getting at the sort of false dichotomy that has been constructed even on the right, that you are either a you're either a neocon or you care about you're a patriot who cares about our domestic politics. And there's so much entanglement between the two. Even if you look at like the Reuters leak of Amazon documents, internal internal Amazon documents talking about how um, and I think this was in a memo to Jay Carney of the Obama administration, people may remember um, saying, you know, we know the goal of the CCP is we know propaganda is central to that goal. And control is central to that goal. Um, but it's, we're not here to pass a judgment on that. It's amazing. And I was wondering if you could flesh out whether you agree with that um, and why that's important or why it's misguided. Where do you stand on this question of the sort of entanglement of our, our internal strife and the external threat of China? Yeah, I mean, Ben's monologue was so good. He actually had me on um, for that segment and I he turned to me after his monologue and I basically just wanted to say okay everyone just re-listen to Ben's monologue because <laughs> I really don't have much to add to it it was really well done but you know they 
he's exactly right. They, they are totally entertained. It, it is a mistake. It is such a mistake. And, and, you know, I, a lot of these are my, um, dear friends, um, who are conservative, um, intellectuals who, who really, who correctly see problems domestically in the United States with, um, our corporate elite, with our political elite working hand in hand, um, really pulling apart from normal everyday Americans just the distance is getting more vast with this disconnect. And, um, of course you have the wokeness identity politics and all that too, that has just infected our universities. And then as you know, been basically pushed through, um, woke capital and we're seeing it with big tech, you know, this, we can go on and on. Somebody needs to write like a really good piece, just tying it all together. It's, it's, it's so, it's so vast and hard and complicated, but we can kind of see it. And the Chinese government is exploiting that, but not only is it exploiting that, but they, they are woke capital. You think of like um, all these big corporations. I mean, Tesla is opening a plant in Xinjiang um, province. You think of these, these big corporations, they're all the NBA, Hollywood, you know, they, they're all willing to have access to the Chinese market to become more like China, just following the self-censorship. Um, like, you know what they want, they want access to American data. Okay. Well, how bad can that be? Um, they want, they don't want us to talk about, um, you know, Tibet and they don't want us to talk about Tiananmen Square and they don't want us to talk about the, the persecution of Christians and other religious minorities inside China. Okay, fine. You know, what's it matter? I, I've got all of this, um, you know, Chinese market to access and to get rich off of. And, and so, you know, you, they're, they, they're just so intertwined and these folks who are rightly worried about what's going on domestically, they said, you know, we just don't have the, the time and the bandwidth to concern ourselves with the external threats from China are just totally misdiagnosing the problem. And then I would actually even say too, my, my friends who just focus on the external problem from China and they say, we don't want to engage in the culture wars, <laughs> thinking that all of our domestic problems are separate are also wrong. They are related. If, if we don't have, we don't have the cultural confidence to know what it means to, to actually be American, to, to cling to these ideas like, no, we aren't censored. We won't censor. We won't hand over American data. Um, you know, we won't allow you to use American data for your own nefarious ends and purposes. You know, all of these things, you know, then, then, I mean, we're toast. You have, you have to be able to understand the domestic problem, the external problem, and, and it's not neocon. This is just what it means to, to understand that America is worth preserving. And there are certain things that we got to do because we might get critical race theory out of our public schools. But if we don't care about the China threat, we'll look up and realize that we're the, under the thumb of the Chinese Communist Party in the next decade. And then we really are in a bind. So, um, you know, it's got to be both. We have to be smart about it and figure out the best ways to do it, the most prudent ways to do it. But it's going to take military seriousness to deter aggression, Chinese aggression in the Pacific. It's going to take economic seriousness and it's going to take, you know, it's going to take some, some really hard looks on what we're doing domestically and what we're allowing these big corporations to do in China. Um, so there's a lot of work to go, you know, going forward, but it, it's got to be both domestic and, and external and having a serious statecraft, serious foreign policy. 
It reminds me of the controversy in China over Nomadland, which won all kinds of Oscars, I think deservedly so, last year, even though it's one of those sort of small movies that nobody saw and nobody wants to watch the Oscars if they're just going to decorate Nomadland. But in China, <laughs> uh, they, the, the director had given an interview like 10 years ago where she said that, uh, you know, you're always being surveilled or something to that extent. Um, in China. She's she's Chinese. And so they didn't know whether to celebrate the film because it was from a Chinese director. They didn't know whether they should just scrub it from social media. Nobody can talk about it because she once criticized China 10 years ago. But at the same time, they also didn't know whether they should celebrate Nomadland because it is about the failures of capitalism and the capitalist system. And so they were like completely torn, Um, but they were pretty, there were actual like CCP mouthpieces saying, listen, Nomadland is great because it makes the West look like a a disaster. Um, And it's an important, I think, glimpse into their thinking. You mentioned, Rebecca, that there are certain things that we have to do um, externally and perhaps in or around Taiwan Taiwan, or regarding Taiwan, (laughs) at least immediately, that and this is where the disagreements, I think, have really started to get heated and fiery um, on the right in particular and on the left. What is your argument for, and you just got into this, of course, but what is your argument for um, taking sort of military steps in Taiwan? What does that look like? What is the middle ground between being sort of totally focused on just our domestic politics, being a full-blown neocon who wants boots on the ground in Taiwan, and, and doing, as you said, those certain things that are necessary to protect our interests at home and abroad? Sure. Well, one of the reasons I'd say is one of the... You know, I'm I'm not arguing that the United States has to uh, defend Taiwan solely because it's a liberal democracy. You know, that's not that's not my argument. And I think it's helpful to be able to you know clarify for some people why this is not just blanket interventionism without any real principle and tied to American interests. Um, and it's not this idea that's not this idealist notion that we're trying to just spread democracy. You know, Taiwan is already a democracy, <laughs> so we're not spreading it. This is not Afghanistan 2.0. Um, this is not imposing our will in Taiwan. This is a this is a liberal democracy um, right there near mainland China. And the reason it's so critical is, you know, I, I talked a little bit earlier in our conversation about how for decades, the reason we didn't see China acting so provocatively abroad and, and, and much more brazen in its censorship outside its borders, and we can get to that too a little bit, but, but and we're seeing now much more aggressive repression at home. The reason we didn't see that earlier on is it didn't, it didn't, have, the, it didn't have the clout to be able to do that um, with the impunity that it has been able to because it didn't have the strong economy or the strong military. Countries, they, they get their power economically and militarily. And, and so it's not just this, this, this very idealist notion, you know, the strength of our ideas is what makes us strong. You know, it's our diversity that makes us strong. It's like, no, it's that we have the most, the best nuclear weapons in the world. You know, yes, we're good because of the things that we believe and the system of government we have. That's what makes us noble. But our strength comes from our military and our economy in, in the real world. Well, China right now is is sort of held at bay by America's system of alliances and mainly Taiwan. So it doesn't it isn't able to stretch beyond um, that first island chain in which it would even have even more power. Um, it would have even more ability, more coercive leverage 
over the United States and the West. And Taiwan is really key to this. They take Taiwan, they can move past Taiwan and have total coercive ability over Eurasia. Um, and if the, you know, I think it's something like last time I checked the that particular region, the Indo-Pacific region, is going to um, constitute like two-thirds of the global economy over the next 10 years. And if China is able to establish a real hegemony over that area and, and really set the terms about who does business there and where we can go and what we can do, that's enormous coercive leverage on the United States. I mean, we think that we're in a bad spot now just because we have these like, you know, corporate elites and political elites who have this soft spot towards status behavior of the Chinese Communist Party. And it lends itself to them being, you know, wooed by by the Chinese market and not really having that big of a problem with censorship and turning over data of Americans, all that kind of stuff. We're really going to be in a bind when there really isn't anything we can do because of the strength of their military, their access to the markets and the ports and everything else that they have. So Taiwan is key. And I'm not arguing for war over Taiwan. What I and others have been arguing is we need to establish strong military deterrence to deter China from taking Taiwan. And, and so that does require the United States building up our military capabilities around the region in collaboration with our allies. And, you know, you've got people on the right saying, forget it, Taiwan's toast. You know, um, and I just think that is so foolish, so naive to think that in 2022, we have the luxury of just turning our back on what's happening in the rest of the world. I mean, if we want to preserve the American way of life, um, it means that we need to we need to be able to make sure that we still have access to the world's markets. And, and so that that means we have to deter Chinese aggression. We have to. It'll be a China led world or a US, wet, uh, U.S. Western-led, meaning we have the primary influence in how things are done globally, world. Um, and so, you know, think so that's the debate we have say, to have. I think some people would say fine. I, I think some people in the sort of new right would say fine. It can be a Chinese-led world as long as the United States and uh, our people are prosperous and our government is working. And I guess that... Do, do you have the same impression? I mean, I really think that might be totally fine with some people in the new right. Not everybody, but it seems increasingly so. They're totally, completely, and utterly naive about what that would mean for them. You know, this is if you might not care about Christians in China. You might not care about the liberal Democrats in Taiwan that just want to be left alone. Okay, but you you should see what I mean. China has just eaten up all this data. They still, they still sell all the drones in the United States that you buy from Costco, these DJI drones. They're all Chinese Communist Party. We have strong reason to believe that they're just taking just all of the data from people just flying drones around their neighborhoods and the you know, Department of Interior using our drones. And, I mean, China just handed for free drones to the U.S., to various cities, um, in case they wanted to use them for surveilling people from not following lockdown orders. Okay. So you take, they take, they're taking, they're just so hungry, insatiably hungry for data. What are they using it for? We, we now know through investigative reporting, they're threatening people here in the United States who are Chinese nationals for their speech and their behavior and the things that they're doing and threatening their um, family members in mainland China if they don't stop particular activities that they're doing. I mean, this is just the, the, the nose under the tent. If we think that they're just going to, out of the goodness of their heart, 
keep it so that they could only apply that to Chinese nationals. We are delusional. You, you, we watch what I mean, they are just gobbling up Hong Kong. Taiwan would be next. We would have a regional area in China under the thumb. And what I mean by under the thumb is they decide what we can and cannot do. And it's, it's not going to just be restricted to just over there. Like they just don't care if the United States wants to have an open society. They'll just leave us that way. They will increasingly use their coercive ability to turn our country into something that looks way more like China than it already is. Um, and so, I mean, we're sort of, we're on the front end of this and you have to use your imagination and look at history and apply it and see where we could be in 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. We want a free and open American society with strong American families, strong American characteristics. You, you've got to make sure that we are still stronger than, 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 the, than the country that is determined to supplant us and make us more like them. And that's China. Um, and so that's what I, I mean, if these, you know, I, these Catholic integralists, I keep, they've got this like soft spot for the Chinese Communist Party. I'm like, you think that the Catholics in the United States are going to do well with China in charge? Of course not. Mm. Christians don't stand a chance in China. And so we should be looking at what's going on domestically in China and imagining what that would look like with their restrictions and their criteria applied to our own country. And we should resist it with everything we have. And we sort of don't have the option anymore not to, because as much as we want to, and you just made this argument much better than I can, as much as we want to just sort of sit over here, um, you know, miles and miles and miles and miles and miles away from China and be happy and do our own thing, it's just not possible because they won't let that happen. Even if we can have a prosperous America, uh, they will... they don't want that period. Um, even if we're just much smaller and our economy is on a smaller scale and our people are, it just doesn't work in 2022 or no. alone like 2030, 2050. Um, and I guess that I'm, I'm curious if you think this, this entire conversation on the right, and I don't mean to be so narrowly focused on the right, but I think you have very helpful perspective here. It seems to me almost as though people are talking past each other, not as though that's uncommon, but it does seem like that's what's happening in that I don't think exactly what you just laid out is actually objectionable to or would be objectionable to people um, who are very much do object to this idea that we need to become more interventionist in in Taiwan and the area. Uh, Exactly what you just laid out. I mean, that's not you're not calling for anything (laughs) dramatic or you're not calling for a new sort of uh, era of endless wars, but do you get the sense that, do you agree with that? I mean, do you think if people actually, like, you're on the same page, that our domestic politics are a hot mess, and that our people need to be taken care of first, and that companies like Tesla opening plants in Xinjiang is unpatriotic and objectionable, Um, so we can all sort of agree about that. We can agree in that bucket, and I think a lot of people can agree with exactly what you just said, because it's plainly logical that we don't really have an option anymore. Is the conversation... I think that you're right, but I think that there are actually, there are some real fundamental assumptions where we don't agree on. One of the things that, you know, I've been called, you know, too hawkish and and a a neocon for a long time because I do believe in American military strength as fundamental to securing the American way of life. I do. And I, I, so, so part of me, you know, part of, part of what I've just argued is that we, we have to, we have to, have to, have to have a preeminent military able to 
um, contest China in the Indo-Pacific. And that means I do believe that Taiwan is worth um, preserving through deterrence. So I, I am suggesting um, that, that we do have to work with our allies to prevent Chinese aggression against Taiwan. I think there really are some people in the, on the side, conservative, and surely definitely on the left, that's a whole other conversation, um, who believe, though, that, that it will be fine if we just let them have Taiwan and let them have those particular markets, let them have their own, quote unquote, sphere of influence, and then we can just have ours. I think that that is as idealistic and naive as what the left offers. The, the reason China is able to act so brazenly, I mean, China is basically just taking over the, the UN. It used to be that we thought, you know, we have this, U, we have the UN, and then we, we can assert our own influence and have greater influence over what's happening in the world because other countries will look to us and say, oh gosh, well, the United States is saying this, so we better do it. We have greater leverage and influence. China is just wielding that like crazy at the UN. And it's because people, these other countries are looking to them. They're saying, well, look at the size of their Navy. It's, mm -hmm. it's huge. And, and so they're going to look to see who, who is the bit, the best bet, who, who, which country is serious about its long-term survivability. And, and so what I'm saying is it does have to be, we do have to be a serious military power and it's, but, and, and understand that that is because the re it ends and means we have to be clear about ends and means. I mean, we want to have a strong military, not because we're spreading democracy, but because I want to secure the American way of life. And I do believe that's better for the world if the United States is strong and prosperous, but not strong and prosperous and kind of like China. You know, I want us to be strong and prosperous <laughs> and very American. And, um, but it goes back to that, like, what does it mean to be American? And that's why I'm 100% in agreement with people who are diagnosing um, the, the problems that we have with our, our liberal elite, and it starts with the academies, but moving down, you know, and, and from there, and are really changing what, what the American experiment is supposed to be, trying to rewrite it, and the 1619 sort of self-loathing, um, very divisive, you know, woke politics. I think that that is so, so bad, just poison, and, and is changing what it means um, to, to be American. And as I do totally agree that we have to fight that and do all of these necessary things because, you know, I told Ben, I didn't know, I, I said when I was on Fox with Ben, so what I envision is this, like, I want us to have a Norman Rockwell domestic agenda <laughs> and I want a Rockwell B1 bomber foreign policy agenda, <laughs> which is like strong, you know, get, get our, our confidence back about what it means to be American and have these strong families and strong communities and, you know, be one of the best things we can do to inoculate ourselves against CCP influence is being more like us. Mm. And, and so it, it just, it's, it's that. So, yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of talking past each other, but I really think that there are some fundamental assumptions where we were, we disagree and, and so it's a debate that I welcome. We have to have it. And, and I think the Taiwan piece is critical. I think we're going to have on the right a big debate over preserving Taiwan. And I just hope that conservatives see, yeah, I mean, Taiwan, there's a, it's not just altruism. It's totally within our interest 
to make sure that Taiwan remains free and independent from China, Chinese mainland. mainland. Yeah, I think this debate has already been constructive and, and is bearing fruit because there obviously needs to be correction on both sides of the question. There needs to be correction, like there needs to be a corrective on the right to, you know, the what we've seen over the last couple of decades and the, the excesses of interventionism. And there needs to be a corrective on the other side. And the more we have these debates, the more those points have an opportunity to be aired and to, um, you know, get, get made and to be persuasive. And I didn't mean to diminish the idea. I really do think you're right. There is a strain of of new conservatism that has a very sort of dangerous notion about yeah. um, isolationism. I think that's totally true. I guess what I, I'm, I also think, though, that the Taiwan question has become a buzzword that immediately it's like being used as a litmus test. Like what you yeah. say in a tweet about Taiwan is this litmus test that I think actually is really unhelpful because people can have very reasonable disagreements in that sort of big middle ground that you talk about. Um, and I guess I see it that way in that you yeah. in, in that is where I think most conservatives are, but I think yeah. they're divided with the, the buzzword and the litmus test in ways that paper over the agreements. I think that's right. And I also, what I really don't like, I, I and this just, I've, be, I've like have snapped at people on Twitter when they say this, because it just gets under my skin so easily. But this idea where I say like, we're not going to send our boys to die for Taiwan. Yes. And, and which they say that to me and I look at them like last time I checked, I'm the only one who has sons between the two of us. And I would like my children to grow up in freedom. So, you know, we, yes, we want peace, but not peace at any cost. There are some things that are worth protecting. And, and I believe, you know, America and the American way of life is that. And I see it as inextricably tied to preventing China from having a, from becoming the hegemon over Eurasia. And we have taken it for granted. We have taken it for granted since World War II and then the Cold War, thankfully, that didn't get as hot as what the World Wars got. We did have uh, Korea, which obviously was not a small thing. But we have just gotten fat and lazy in thinking that peace is just inevitable. And it's not something that you actually have to protect with intentionality. And, and it comes from the strength of militaries and economies. And, and so while we're, you know, having to do some major open heart surgery domestically with what it means to be American in our, in our institutions, um, we have got to make sure that we're still holding the line abroad. And, and what I have tried to put forward is there are things that we can do now that are very smart and it'll be a lot of work, but we can do it to deter Chinese aggression. And that requires hard power. It's gonna require deploying a lot more military weapons and equipment to the Indo-Pacific. And when I start arguing for that, I get pushback on the right saying, it's provocative. I'm provoking China. China is the one that wants to gobble up Taiwan. I'm happy for things to, for the status quo to remain, for Taiwan to sort of have this ambiguous status, you know? Isn't that like the tanky argument? Isn't that sort of like the the new right adopting this like Chomsky-esque framework about U.S. aggression? Oh, totally. Basically, it's like the far right is like, oh, well, China's only acting defensively. Like, Mm -hmm. are you crazy? (laughs) If if China was only at, nobody is trying to invade China. 
Nobody's even trying. No, Taiwan is not trying, is not gearing up to invade China. The Taiwanese want to be left alone. The, the, the country that's trying to change the status quo is Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party. And so they're the aggressors. They're the ones that are trying to push the U.S., you know, have coercive ability to push the U.S. and our allies out of the Indo-Pacific. They want to break up the alliance between the U.S. and Japan. They want to crack confidence in the South Koreans for us, the Australians. I mean, they're looking for all these vulnerabilities and they're, and they're sticking their finger in them and trying to split them apart. You know, we're not the aggressors, but but you'll you will constantly see people on the right in defense of their ultimate conclusion make the same arguments that I've been combating from the left, the blame America first crowd. It's interesting. And um, it's just it's not true and it's deeply harmful for the American cause. So we're now uh, entering 2022, or it is 2022, apparently. It's kind of wild to think about, but we're almost <laughs> a year into the Biden presidency. Um, so, Rebecca, with a year in the rearview window, what uh, what grade would you give Joe Biden on his approach to China or, or China issues in general? Oh, gosh, it's such a hard question because I don't actually think he's thinking about it at all. Um, I would give the people who are trying the pe- the reasonable people inside the Biden administration who are trying who see the threat more clearly i would give them a c minus at their attempts probably an overall d i guess <laughs> and the re- the reason i'm kind of conflicted is there there really are to be fair there there are some people inside the Biden administration who have realized what china has been up to militarily and so they 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 put together this um this new arrangement called AUKUS, uh, which is is to try to get nuclear submarines to the Australians. And it's a big deal, but uh, Biden didn't even really seem to know about it. They announced this, it was a big deal. The French, to, to, to save your listeners, all of the back and forth, the French didn't know about it. The French were gonna sell the Australians a nuclear submarine. They got left out of the deal, they were upset. It was a big international disaster. And Biden was asked about it and he told the French, I didn't even know you guys didn't know about it. So I really do think the president is fairly checked out on all of this. And there's some people trying to do some good things inside there. But I mean, listen, if you if, if you don't with intent, the, the, the problems are so large and the urgency is so great to do the right thing that we just don't have the luxury of time to just constantly year after year you know, bungle this and just get it wrong. We, we have to prioritize China as the pacing threat, the priority threat. We have to look at the Russia threat in light of the China threat. Russia is cozying up to China um, militarily in all of these different ways because the Russians want to undo the West, you know. And, and so what we have to have, so whenever you do things like wave sanctions on Nord Stream 2, which just gives Russia coercive power, I mean, you have to understand that you're in, in, in a way um, helping Russia, which helps China. I mean, you, you have to see the threat clearly. And again, this is not like just warmongering, you know, policy recommendations. This is just smart statecraft. Let's not let the, our adversaries have an easier time of it. And, and so, um, and I, and, and the Biden administration has tried, um, you know, appeasement a little bit with the Chinese. They've looked the other way when China violates sanctions with Iran and and all kinds of things. 
So we're not doing what's necessary to, to get, we've got Chinese spies just infiltrating our universities in our labs. And we're getting some, we're catching some of them and, 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 you know, some of them are getting in trouble, but it is just like tip of the iceberg. So we don't have a serious administration that understands the degree of the China threat. Um, and, and we need that just desperately. Then the, the next president just has to understand that we really are in a cold war with China that is determined to supplant us. And we, we have to have an across the government approach to handling it in order to preserve peace, avoid military conflict, and ensure that we can have longer time, the time that we need necessary to, to handle these domestic, serious crises that we have here at home. Fascinating and terrifying as always. Rebecca Heinrichs, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Uh, Rebecca is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. You can follow her on Twitter at RL Heinrichs. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the first.